Welcome to Make Me Your Voice with Pastor David Bartowell. These messages are intended to deepen your faith and trust in a living God who speaks to us with hope and reason. Today's message comes to us from the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. Good morning. I have to confess that the subject matter today isn't always on the forefront of my mind, the cross. Last week I gave you some inside information. And someone came to me and goes, oh, did you wear that shirt last week? It's an inside joke unless you were here last week. Let me tell you, one of my favorite sermons that I preached was last week's because I love eschatology. You know what eschatology is? It's a study of last things. And I love that because when I focus on that, everything else seems to diminish. Here's a problem with that. Without the cross, it's meaningless. The cross is where everything happened. And I think, obviously, as Christians, we should focus on the cross more, and today that's what we're going to do. Because in the series, The Truth Heals, the truth heals past problems. Next week, we'll talk about future problems. But all the problems were taken care of at the cross, and we have to keep our eye on the target, you know, which is Jesus. And I don't know about you. What's your favorite sport? Anybody? How many like football? Okay, how many like baseball more than football? How many like basketball? Okay, how many like soccer? Okay, good. We're down to like, okay. How many like golf? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. But if you were to boil it down for every one of those sports, what is the major component of having success? Teamwork. How about keeping your eye on the ball? You know, focus, right? But any pitchers, anybody who pitched baseball, you know, and had to, throw to a catcher. Is that easy? No, it's very hard. Would I make it harder or easier? Let's say that Mike Pickle's the catcher, and I never look at him. I always looking at the second baseman because I like the second baseman better. (laughs) So I kind of, you know, ignore my catcher. And all of a sudden, at the last second, I throw. That ain't going to work. Or what if I focused on the batter? Instead of the catcher, which is what I usually hit the batter. (laughs) Ask my son when I used to pitch to him. I like make him wear the whole catcher outfit just to hit. But it's kind of like my golf game. You know, I focus on the hazard. Like I'm not going to hit it in the lake. (laughs) It's in the lake. Right? Because I'm focusing on the wrong thing. If I want to throw a strike, I need to focus on the catcher. I need to hit my spots. But a lot of Christians, we're focusing on all everything else. We're focusing on the hazards, the things that happened to us in the past, we're, all our regrets, our problems, instead of focusing on the cross and focusing on the Lord and see what He did for us. And then we can have peace in our life because everything's taken care of, like the Apostle Paul, who struggled with a lot of baggage. Think about it. He killed Christians. I mean, that's nothing to be proud of, Right? But look what he writes here. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because Paul knew that if he focused on his past, he wouldn't accomplish what God had for him in this life. A lot of Christians have a lot of carry-ons. You get on a plane and you, you try and fit it in the overhead and then you had to check it. Don't bring any carry-ons. Empty your baggage. It's taken care of. It's done. There's nothing you can change. 
But you can change your attitude about how you live in the present. Because if you don't have hope in the future, you don't have power in the present. You're going to live powerless. So here's the truth. The truth is the cross took care of all my problems. The greatest problem we have is sin. Sin is what separates us from God. But look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. Read it with me. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when Jesus died on the cross, he took care of our sin problem, past, present, and future for the believer who's in Christ. But here's the thing. Romans 3.23 tells us a little insight into some past problems that were taken care of. Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which is an atonement or substitute by His blood to pay for our sin. Think about this. Uh, We're going to talk about this a little bit, but is God holy? Is God righteous? Is God just? Okay, so in order for those things to be true, He has to judge evil. Sin is evil, okay? So how did he do it? By a propitiation, his own son. And then when we received by faith him and what he did for us, this was to show God's righteousness, because here's the thing, in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. Now, what does that mean? There's two views on that. Some people say, It's sins that were committed in the past. Others say it's sins that were committed in the days before Christ. Either way, it doesn't matter. They're both taken care of because God is not constrained by time. This is the amazing thing. We are constrained by time, so we can go, oh, all those past sins, those weren't taken care of? No, because the Bible says in Revelation that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. How's that happen? Because God's not constrained by time. When Jesus appeared in our time, that's timeless. That took care of everything. But God was patient, and this is the important thing, with us. And he's patient with everybody. Because he wants everyone to repent and come to Christ. You know, the Old Testament sacrificial system was kill a certain animal, and then that would cover the sins of the people for a time. And the longest was like a year at the Day of Atonement where that would cover the sins of the people for a year and then have to do it again. So imagine if we were living in the Old Testament time, this message would not pertain to us at this point because Jesus hadn't died on the cross. All we would know is we have to go outside and kill an animal that the blood would suffice for a certain time. But the sins were not taken away. They were covered. When Jesus died on the cross, all our sins were taken away. That's the difference. So we have to understand what happened. It cost a lot to be able to have the reality and the message that I can preach today and that we can live today. So what happened at the cross? At the cross, my problems were erased. That's why Paul was able to say, I forget what's behind me. Read this incredible verse in Psalm 103, verse 12, written by 
King David. Read it with me. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, think about this. David lived in Old Testament times. So how could he say this? You know, in Leviticus 16, God gives Israel the instructions for the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It talks about a scapegoat. And there's two goats. One is slain. The other one, the high priest puts symbolically all the sins of the people on the head of the goat and sends it out into the wilderness. That's why it's a scapegoat. It took all the sin, but it didn't take them away. But David is here to say, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's amazing to me. In context, this is what's going on. First of all, Read Psalm 102 when you get a chance, because it's nothing like this. It's very repentant. David talks of his bones aching from sin, because he's just done a very bad thing. He had an affair with the wife of his friend. And in fact, he premeditated murder, where he sent his friend Uriah, the Hittite, to go fight a war on the battlefield in hopes that he would die so that David could marry Bathsheba. And he did die. David did that. But also God said, David is a man after my own heart. So how does that reconcile? How can somebody do such a bad thing and still be a person after God's own heart? Well, when David was on his rooftop, you know, he's the king. So he's looking over the town and he sees Bathsheba. And he's glanced And then a glance turned into a gaze. And then the gaze turned into lust. And the next thing you know, he calls for her. And that's where Nathan steps in. So if you have your Bible, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Here's what's happening. Nathan is a prophet in Israel. And starting in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, it says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children, and it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. So this lamb was very important to this man. That's all he had. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock for his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David got ticked. His anger burned, it said. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this despicable thing deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan looks in David's eyes and says, you are that man. Wow. Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel. Now God speaks to David through Nathan. It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your care, 
and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that wasn't enough, I would have added to you all bunch of other things. Why then, David, you despise the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, David, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. What's going on here? David is being disciplined because he's a son of the living God, who's his father and our father. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own family. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in the broad daylight. Read 2 Samuel 16, because that happened. Absalom, David's son, rebelled against his own father's kingdom and took his wives. Verse 12, indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Everyone's going to see this, David. Now, here's what happens. David is the king, but he realizes he is not the king. He says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, check this out. Yahweh, the Lord, has taken away your sins and you will not die. So that's why he can write, as far as the east is from the west, so have my sins gone away. But verse 14, there's a consequence. And here's the reason why. David, I love you. You did a bad thing. I forgive you. But you're the king. And you're witness to me. And you've given my enemies the opportunity to blaspheme me. The child... Also that is born to you and Bathsheba shall die. And so Nathan went to his house. This is amazing stuff because you see God's forgiveness, but you see his righteousness. And you see how much he takes sin seriously. Because God has to judge sin. But even in his judgment, he's forgiving. So the child becomes sick and becomes deathly ill. David fasts like there's no tomorrow, and he prays, God, please have mercy and don't take this child. And then we pick up in the same chapter, 2 Samuel, and we go to verse 12, and the child has died. So David rose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he had requested, they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servant said to him, What is this thing you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. This is the importance of prayer. Prayer doesn't change God's plan in mind, but it changes us to align with his. But verse 23 is powerful. He said, but now my child has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And look at the faith. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David knows where the child is. He's with God. See, David could have gone into pity party land in a cave and just shut down. But he didn't. He knew God still had a plan for him on this earth. 
And he was able to write, as far as the east is from the west, so far God renewed our transgressions from us. Now, I said I love David because he's an Old Testament man living a New Testament kind of life. He's like a type of a New Testament person. He points to Christ, but he also points to the believer in Christ. He understands grace. See, that's the key. Do you understand God's grace? Because if you had any concept of even a little of his grace, you would get out of the pity party and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe God would even care about me and send to die on a cross so that my sins could be forgiven, past, present, future, and I can live and have a fulfilling life. And I don't have to carry that baggage anymore. Compare what David did to what you might have done. Compare Paul. Have you killed Christians lately? Add stuff, but God's forgiveness is way bigger. Isaiah brings even more depth to what God has done, where he says, God says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins anymore. Does God know everything? Does God remember everything? Here he says, I choose to not remember your sins. That's why Paul can write, the one thing I do, I forget my past. Because God did. Here's the thing, why if God forgot your past, why do you still choose to remember it? Let it go. Next, at the cross, my past problems were resolved. They were erased and they're resolved. Because there was a problem that needed to be solved. Because I said God is holy and he's just and he has to judge evil. John Stott writes, The problem of forgiveness is constituted by the inevitable collision between divine perfection and human rebellion, between God as he is and us as we are. How could God express his holy love, his love in forgiving sinners without compromising his holiness, and his holiness in judging sinners without frustrating his love? Confronted by human evil, how could God be true to himself as holy love? In Isaiah's words, how could he simultaneously a righteous God and a Savior? Stephen Wellam writes, Whereas sin is an internal moral problem for humanity, forgiveness is an intrinsic problem for God. Now that doesn't mean that's a problem beyond what he can accomplish, but it is something that needed to be taken care of. How does God solve the problem of being a holy God and a loving God and a forgiving God? How can he be God and Savior? Here's how. Romans 3.26. Read it with me. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier one who has faith in Jesus. God is a loving God who forgives, but he's a righteous God who condemns evil. So the cross is where he shows us both sides, right? He shows us the judgment and condemnation of sin as all our sin is poured upon the one without sin, his only son, and he shows us our forgiveness because of the outcome of what happened. And we can look back, say, all my past problems are taken care of. Every problem I have, 
Romans 5.19 says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, and the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So our problems were solved at the cross, and because of the cross, I am redeemed. Redeemed. Set free. Released. Bought. Purchased. Back. Ephesians 1.7, read it with me. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. How are we redeemed? How are we bought back from death and sin? By His blood. Whose blood? The Lord Jesus. We're going to start a series on October 6th. We're going to go through the book of Exodus because we left off in Genesis and we we'll go through Exodus. And one of the biggest themes in Exodus is God's redemption, right? Here's Israel in bondage to Egypt. What does God do? He rescues them. He rescues them from captivity. What are we? Were we in bondage to anything? Yes, we were in bondage to Egypt, so to speak. Death, servitude, sin. What did God do? He redeemed us. He rescued us. Did it cost anything? caused everything. The Hebrew word for redemption has even a deeper context because it carries the concept of the kinsman redeemer, where the nearest of kin is responsible for redeeming or buying back either a member of his family. We see that in the book of Ruth, or something that once belonged to him. So Jesus redeemed us by purchasing us back from the devil in the kingdom of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of light. And that happened at the cross, where the devil is defeated forever, eternally. We don't have to worry about our future or our past or our present, because it's all taken care of. Now, the Apostle Paul, let's talk about him. And this is why we always do the finding yourself in the story section. How to forget your past and move forward. Would you agree with me that Paul had a past problem? Yeah, he was in a pit. And it wasn't just because he did bad things. It also had to do with his sin. And he didn't see it. He was a very self-righteous person. Do you know that Paul claimed to be blameless with regards to keeping the law? A lot of people have a problem with that statement. And he's saying this as a believer looking back. What they don't realize, there were people back then these Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders that probably were able to keep the external commands of the law. I mean, if you're disciplined enough, we see it in religions today, especially in Mormonism, where there's an emphasis on works. They can say, oh yeah, I do exactly what they say to do. But does keeping the law externally solve the internal problem? No. We do read that in Romans 7, which is one of my favorite passages because I totally relate to Paul. He's saying, I try to do the right thing. I do the wrong thing. What is going on? It's like my life story. Even as a believer, we're going to struggle with that. So then he finally saw that this isn't about keeping the external commands of the law. This is about being screwed up inside and needing a Savior to redeem me from death and sin. So Paul... Does anyone know where he wrote this letter to the Philippians? Where was he? He was in a prison. Yeah, he was in Roman prison. For why? What did he do? Preach the gospel. Would you agree with me that 
you can learn a lot from someone that's beyond you in experience, oftentimes in age. You know, a lot of times you go, oh, they're old-fashioned. I like to listen to people that are beyond me in experience because I'd rather learn before I screw it up myself. I'm like, how did you, what did you do? Oh, yeah, I'm trying to do that then, you know? I love this verse, Proverbs 16, 31. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. There's a picture of wisdom in Paul, and we shouldn't underestimate his words. In fact, it's kind of like his final words. So what does he say? He focuses on moving forward. And this is how you do it. Remember from where you came. Here's the thing. We should look back and go, oh, yeah, I remember where I came. That was horrible. But we don't stay there. You know, it's like getting on a ride at Disneyland, and then it shuts down. I went to Love Disneyland, you're on this ride or something, and it was in Space Mountain, I think, and it shut down. It was all dark. All the lights went out and everything. Yeah, I don't want to stay in there. I want to get out. I want to go through the tunnel thing. And I don't want to be stuck in the dark. But we choose to do this for some reason. We should look back to learn. Because it's good to remember from where we came, but we should look how God pulled us out of the pit. So that's where Paul starts. Here's the backdrop. He's ticked at what he's calling the dogs, these people, these religious leaders that are infiltrating the church in Philippi, trying to force them to be circumcised. That's why he talks about the flesh. Although I myself also have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I all the more. Now he lays out his stunning resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day, just like the law said. I'm of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, with regard to the law, a Pharisee. Verse 6, with regard to zeal, I persecuted the church. With regard to righteousness based on the law, blameless. Now again, externally. So Paul could have stuck there and said, man, I am righteous, dude. I'm like so righteous, I'm going to cancel you because you need to be canceled. Have you heard that term? It's called canceled culture, you know, where people like judge you because they're more righteous than you. You might tweet something. I don't agree with that. You're canceled. Yeah, seriously, that's what they do. And basically, like, you're not good enough to even be a human being. You should be canceled. You know, they do that with people. They cancel Hollywood celebrities. You never work in Hollywood again. Like, thank God. Jeez, I tried that life. And then the cancel culture. It's a form of boycott, which someone, you know, usually a celebrity, who has shared a questionable or unpopular opinion on social media, and they're canceled. So Paul could have, oh, man, you're canceled, dude. Look at my resume. You think you're righteous? No, look at me. You're out. Now, here's what I think. The people who are canceling other people should first cancel themselves because no one should be looking down their nose at another person in the self-righteousness without pulling the plank out of their own eye. That's the epitome of self-righteousness is I'm holier than you. Your opinion doesn't matter. My opinion, you know, this and this, and you get into the opinion argument, and then you go, well, yeah, but the truth says this. Oh, you're canceled. You believe that? You see tweets judging others according to their behavior and finding out later that the person that judged does the same thing or worse things. So Paul, if he lived in the cancel culture, he would have canceled a lot of people. He was a Pharisee. He was like in the parable of the two people who prayed. You know, there was a tax collector and the Pharisee. 
you know, the Pharisee has, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that person. They're inferior. Thank you that I am who I am. And then you have the tax collector go, Lord, I'm not even worthy to look up at you. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says it was that guy who went home justified. So we get more insight into Paul's past. And Galatians, where he writes, For you heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, that I was persecuting the church of God excessively and was trying to destroy it. Wow, how's that? And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my own people, being especially zealous for my ancestral traditions. That's what I love about Paul. Paul was like one of those guys, somebody who's like on fire for something, but they're so lost. I hate to bring it, but last week when I talked about climate change, people who are like on fire about that, and they're like so lost scripturally of what's going on in the world. What if they got saved and got that zealous about God and his word? Man, that would be cool. Well, that's kind of what happened to Paul, right? Now, here's the problem with Paul. He was zealous for traditions. You can be passionate for the wrong thing. Sadly to say, if you look at church history, not the very beginning of the church, but you get into the Roman Catholic Church and that type of organization, Until the Reformation, the Catholic Church actually voted in the council once saying that tradition should outweigh Scripture. So you can get passionate about tradition and forget what God says. That's exactly what Paul was doing. And then he has a V8 moment. He's like, oh my gosh, I thought I was doing the right thing for God. I was persecuting the church. How could that be? There's no way that this can be of God. How easy is to get off track? If you're not in the Word, you can just get off track so easily. Now, so Paul's eyes were opened. In 1 Timothy 1, he writes, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer. Formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the worse. Paul looked at his past life and goes, that was horrible. I'm so glad God pulled me out of that. And that's what we should do. Hey, we shouldn't stay there. Next, you should come to terms with where you are. Come to terms with where you are. So that's where Paul goes next. Because this entire series is based on believing the truth. It's not enough to know the truth. You have to believe it for yourself, and then you truly can be set free. And that's where Paul goes now in in verse 7 of Philippians 3. He says, you know, my resume was stunning, but whatever was gained to me, those things have been regarded as lost for the sake of Christ. All that stuff, it doesn't matter anymore. God can use it. Did God use Paul's past? Heck yeah. First of all, his personality was such that when it turned around for God, today we're still living here in Churchville because of what he started. But the other part of it, did God use Paul's knowledge of God's word? Heck yeah. So it's not like all of a sudden all that stuff goes to waste. No, God turned it around. And then verse 8, but more than that, I can consider all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing. That was what he wanted to do. He wanted to know Christ 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and regard them all as refuge, garbage, dung. Does anybody remember the Greek word for that? Skubalon. What that really means is stuff that you throw out to the dogs, and the way I remember it is Scooby-lon, Scooby-Doo. So Scooby, you throw the stuff out to the dogs. Why? Because I want to know Christ, and I can't gain and know Christ if I'm still relishing in the garbage. And then verse 9, and I might be found in him. Think about how incredible the change of heart Because here's one of the most incredible miracles God does. In order to believe something new, you have to unbelieve what was old. Your whole life, he wasn't a young kid. He was an adult. He was taught from a kid to believe one thing, and all of a sudden, the light bulb comes on, and all that stuff that he thought was true had to be filtered out and thrown out to the dogs so that the truth can come in, and he can start living that and telling other people what's really true. That's miraculous. So look what he writes. I don't have a righteousness of my own, but I have a righteousness that is through faith in Christ. Okay, and then verse 10 that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. A lot of people want a power of his resurrection, but how do you do that? You have to know the fellowship of his sufferings because we have to die to ourselves so that we can rise in Christ while being conformed, having the same form likeness to his death. So the old guy died on the cross with Jesus, the old person. The new person is raised with Jesus. And I have to come to terms with this as true for myself. First Timothy, Paul gives us more. He says, yet for this reason, I found mercy. What's the reason? So that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. You know, I can tell you for a fact, for people to believe who I was to be what I'm doing today, I met a guy a few years ago, I was in jury duty, and he was in high school with me, and, and I'm telling him, he, he goes, what do you do? I go, I'm a pastor. He goes, what? <laughs> You're a pastor? I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I had to give him the whole story, but it was an opportunity to share my testimony. But that's what Paul's saying, God's perfect patience being displayed through some sinner like me. And then he praises him, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, it's not about me anymore. And then last, know where you're going. If you know where you're going, everything else will diminish. Imagine driving your car forward and looking in the rearview mirror. A lot of people do this. You have to know where you're going. So Paul says, I died so that if somehow I might arrive, and it doesn't mean like, oh, good luck. No, he's meaning by any means possible, whatever it takes, I'm going to attain the resurrection out or from the dead, and that's the resurrection, the physical resurrection, the rapture that we're all going to experience in Christ. Verse 12, not that I already have received that or have already been made perfect or mature, complete, because he's not. We aren't either. But he says, but I'm just going to give up because, you know, it's really hard to learn theology and scripture and to wake up on Sunday morning to go to church and be with other believers. And it's so much easier to go to the beach and hang out and go to the movies. And not that stuff's bad, but, you know, it's just like tough. I was talking to someone this morning and he was telling me that he's going through this Bible study 
through John, and he said, I started out taking just a couple pages of note. Now I have like a whole thing of this of notes because I can't stop writing down what God's teaching me. That is awesome. So he doesn't say, I'm just going to give up. He says, no, I'm going to press on. You know what that word is? It's the same word for persecute. That same energy that he had to kill Christians and persecutors, now I'm going to use that, or God's going to use that through me that I might help others get saved, that I might take hold of the prize, which is Jesus Christ, of what he's taken hold of me. And then in verse 13, Brothers, I myself do not believe that I've taken hold of it. I haven't gotten there. But one thing I do believe, I forget what's behind me. And that literally means it comes out of my mind because it's out of God's mind. And I stretch out like the runner in a race for what's in front of me, not behind me. That trips me up. A believer should be future-minded Because we break the power of the past by living for the future. If all you do is focus on the past, you can't live in the present and you won't have power. Focus on the future. And that breaks the power of the past. In verse 14, I press on. Again, the same zeal I employed but persecuted the church. I press on now for the goal, for the prize which is the upward calling of God and Christ Jesus, the resurrection of Christ and knowing Him. That's His entire focus. He was on His future. In Galatians, He says, But when it pleased God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, why did God do that? To reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him to the unbelievers, and to the nations. Why are we here? To glorify Christ, to know Christ, and to preach Christ through who you are, through how God made you, through your personality, through your giftings, through your passions. There's only two things you can't do in heaven. What are they? Sin and tell other people about Christ that don't know him because everyone knows him. Which one did God leave you on earth to do? Sin, right? No. Share Christ. Preach Christ. Glorify Christ. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Father, that we don't get stuck in the past. We can live in the present, a fulfilled life in Christ, and we can look to the future with hope, and not just a hope of, I hope it comes true, but a hope that is true because your word says these things. And every problem I have, no matter what it is, past, present, future, is taken care of the cross. So now we can run the race that you've called us to run, but not in our strength, but in your grace. We can run the race when we put you at the forefront of our mind. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor David Bartowell's message reminds us that God speaks to us with hope and reason so that we can be His voice in this world. Please join us again for Make Me Your Voice, a ministry of the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. We would love to have you visit if you're in the area. For more information or to find our location, please visit thegateoc.com. Amen.